Hello, Dave. Hello, audience. Is this Matthew? Is this an artificial intelligence of Matthew? Are we all in the Matrix? Is the Matrix in the Matrix? We'll be discussing artificial intelligence, sentience, the Matrix, and whether all of this is actually a controlled program run by Elon Musk right after this commercial break that Elon Musk probably has control over, but I really hope not. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. I am, to the best of my knowledge, not a artificial uh, intelligence life form. I am an actual human being, and I'm here with two other people who I believe are also not AIs, but let's run a Turing test. You can guess at the end of this episode, and we'll find out. Um, we're talking today about The Matrix. We actually record an episode about this at the end of last year, shortly after the new Matrix movie came out. We had computer problems and there were some audio problems. I'm sure that is completely coincidental again to the conversation topic we were having, but we'll be a little more careful today. Uh, but we're really excited to have this conversation and we're going to be referencing the original Matrix movies, the most recent Matrix movies, but also just using this as a way to kind of jump into the topics around artificial intelligence. Uh, and we've had conversations on that before, but this is a good time to revisit them and kind of dive a little bit deeper. Uh, joining me on the pod today are two great guests. First of all, I want to start with Dan McCreary. Uh, Dan is uh, my father-in-law, I should mention, but also someone I work <laughs> closely with at Code Savvy, where we uh, teach computer programming and computational thinking. And uh, Dan's also does a, a lot of work on uh, developing computational thinking and artificial intelligence. So Dan, uh, so glad to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and the kind of computer work you do. Thank you, Matthew. Um, um, right now I'm doing research in artificial intelligence, mostly applied to lowering the cost of healthcare. Um, I study uh, things like knowledge representation, how do we store knowledge about patients uh, in computer systems, and then do an analysis on that. Uh, I'm working on a new set of curriculum internally for, called explainable AI. So instead of a black box model that predicts things, we can actually understand that. Uh, and uh, I really uh, work very hard to explain to executives what AI is and the consequences we have for our our businesses and how we can lower the cost of uh, providing services. A lot of uh, work is also chatbots lately too. So, awesome, awesome, cool. So glad you're here. Um, and then Rob McKenzie. Rob is someone who I've had on a number of times. Um, I originally planned this podcast to be exclusively movies and television shows, but after a number of times where I brought topics to Rob and said, "Okay, let's talk about this," and he'd be like, "Okay, but there's a book." <laughs> Um, that's kind of how we became a book podcast as well. So Rob, um, so glad to have you with us. Great to be here, Matthew. I am always excited to talk about science fiction and artificial intelligence stuff because it is, a it is a deep and sometimes scary topic. It is black. I like explainable AI because the black box problem is a real problem. And and we'll get to that. And, um, Rob, I, I being very much a techno Luddite, uh, you've explained your work to me a couple of times. I have no idea what it is, actually. Do you? Oh. I know you're very interested in AI for science fiction. Do you work in something related to AI I, as well? I, I work in, I work in a field called metrology. It's measurement systems. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, ridden in a car or flown in an airplane or uh, drunk a bottle of Pepsi, you you rely on um, pretty precise measurement of the parts oftentimes manufactured at different locations. Mm, okay. And so the there's companies that make machines that that measure those parts. 
Got it. And I, I work in software licensing and in the computer sub building computers that we ship out to all the customers. Cool. If you have, if you are familiar with a car manufacturer or an aerospace contractor, we we work with all of them. Got so I work at in so I I do things in the technical field related to that stuff. Got it. But um, cool. Well, glad to have you both here. Again, thank you both for uh, re-recording with us. Hopefully the technological gods will be a little nicer to us this time. And <laughs> let me kind of just start with uh, what's probably a very basic question, and uh, but I'm sure the answer could go on for hours and hours. What is artificial intelligence? What do we mean when we say that word? So here, uh, I'll, I'll go take ahead. this, Dan. I'll let um, you lead. There's, there's basically two things that you might mean. You might mean a specific intelligence. So Dan mentioned chatbots. They're good at one thing. They're good right. at pretending to to interact along a certain field. Um, and then there's general intelligences. Those are those are goal seeking intelligences that like you give them a general a general plan. Right. And instead of like having them be good at one specific task that you've trained them to do, you might give them a very a very very broad task, and then they'll figure out how to do it. We don't really have at all competent artificial general intelligences yet. Mm -hmm. uh, is, that, is that a reasonable... Yeah, that's a very good definition. Uh, I, I would say in the trade press, uh, there's huge abuse mm -hmm. of the term artificial intelligence. <laughs> and Agreed. almost every company that has a product wants to be part of that AI wave. And so uh, they'll take right. almost any product that has if-then-else rules and say we're artificial intelligent, right? And that, that means right. almost all software. But uh, the way I like right. to describe it is artificial intelligence is an evolving wavefront of technologies that people are not mm -hmm. quite comfortable with. And mm. uh, okay. um, and a, my best example is Alexa. You know, uh, five, ten years ago, uh, if you could talk to your speakers and it would understand you and it would do things for you, uh, my wife and I uh, say, set the timer for 20 minutes uh, when we've got something in the oven. And uh, in the past, that would have been AI, but now it's just part of uh, audio interface for our kitchen uh, timer, right? It's become a very mm. mundane part of everyday life. Uh, so artificial intelligence is a constantly uh, area where people are uh, still kind of not sure about it. Uh, and it every year it changes and it moves and uh, how we define AI five years from now will be totally different than how we define it today. Right. Right. Uh, you can also think of it like computer graphics, mm. right? Because because computer graphics, you you begin to accept things as more and more real. There's like an uncanny valley of it's the Orville Redenbacher that doesn't look human at all, right? right? But we we get better at making things that people are willing to accept as time goes on in any in any kind of graphical field, right? So, yeah. No, no, I I can totally understand that. And so that's it kind of like in terms of what it physically is in our own world. And I think this is kind of what you're getting at. My impression, and, and certainly Rob, maybe you as well, Dan, may have more knowledge about this, is that in the world of science fiction, particularly like movies, TV, but maybe also literature, AI tends to have a much more advanced meaning. And that what, what we talk about there is often, and maybe there's an important distinction, what I would think of as sentience, like uh, right. that it, it is a a being that has a degree of self-awareness and maybe has emotions, maybe doesn't, but certainly has, you know, it is not just a tool. It is now kind of a, 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 a 
personality that you can, can it, be related it, it, to. Is that, it is has that its a fair own definition? goals, right? Right now, when exactly. we program computers, we give them very specific rules. But general AI right. is something that has its own goals, and those goals may or may not align with uh, our current goals. Uh, and what science fiction writers do is they take that uh, goal-seeking and see as it diverges from the interest of humanity why that might be interesting. And I think The Matrix entire uh, series of movies is a really good take on that process. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and oftentimes when people think about the problems with general AIs, which is the kind of things that you see, they're thinking of very, very evil genie or monkey's paw kind of scenarios. Right. Where you give them a goal, uh, make paper clips is the classic one. Uh, like you, you have a, you make a robotic factory to make paper clips, give it a, it's a general intelligence and general goal, make it, make as many paper clips as you can. And that's a bad idea because it will turn the whole world into paper clips. Right. And that's the, the, the classic thing. The, the matrix is an example of, I assume that there's secret rules and I always wanted to know them, yeah. what, the, what the AIs were allowed and not allowed to do. Right. Right. They, you get some of them, but yeah. they don't, they don't match what I see on screen. One thing I feel like is often explored in AI is the idea that, you know, there are things that we consciously understand and so we'll program them in. But that there are human concepts that we think of on a subconscious level we don't think of consciously. So, for example, like if I say make as many paper clips as you can, what I mean by that is within the generalized parameters of not doing extensive harm to the things that we don't want to do extensive harm to. And and we can argue about what companies do or don't follow that logic, but, you know, that's the kind of unspoken idea. And, and that the interesting story is when we, we forget to tell the robot that. Um, there was a wonderful little, like, you know, um, sometimes people put these things on, on Twitter or things like that that's like, tell a story in three sentences. And there was one that was, uh, and I, I, I forget the exact details of it, you may remember, but it's something along the lines of, the problem came... We taught that we told the robots to not allow harm to a human being by by action or by like to not allow their inaction to allow harm to come to another human being. We forgot to teach them that the level of harm we cause to each other every day should be acceptable. You know, the idea being that like once you tell the robots to not let humans harm other humans, okay, well it overthrows all governments and it dismantles healthcare and it you know like it, it, it. dismantles and replaces with better healthcare is what I mean there clearly. But yeah, like that, that it, it seems that a lot of the stories re- reflect around like when humans forget to put those level of, of, of thought into it. Exactly. Yeah. Tell, telling yeah. a computer to end world hunger could be interpreted to kill all people that are hungry. Right. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> Got to be very right. specific it, with your goals. And I've, I know I've referenced it before, um, Asimov's story, The Evitable Conflict, mm. is about humanity giving giving their, uh, giving guide, giving the, the keys to the kingdom over to super intelligent AIs. They're better at planning than us. Right. And they start doing weird things. Like somebody who's a, who's a, you know, white supremacist who owns a factory, his factory fails even though his, his, like, his set of technologies is doing fine because uh, some other patent was pushed and it, it made his factory obsolete. And they're like, the robots knew about this and it put a hundred people out of work. Why? Well, because that, that removes him from a position of social power. Right. 
and they they were told to avoid war. <laughs> right. Uh, and so the the question is, what are like they're doing incomprehensible things? We gave them rules, and now we don't know what to do. <laughs> right. And, and I think you're right. I think that's one of the fears that a lot of people have. Like, I mean, I you talk to Alexa, I talk to a machine that starts with the word G that I won't say because or else it'll turn off my lights in the middle of this podcast or something like that. Um, and yeah, I think, I think often the fear is like, you know, what if they're plotting? What if they're, they're kind of self-aware, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, from it, we'll get into kind of more the media of it, but I'm just kind of curious from, from what you all understand. Is that kind of like warp speed or faster than light travel in terms of something that maybe in a thousand years we'll understand, but at this point is even theoretically impossible or, or do you think it is possible that we could we we could get to a point of that kind of science fiction level of we have basically created a living creature just it's silicone based not carbon based? Well, I I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the last couple of years is that computers have started to reason in ways that we have never anticipated, and the best example of this mm. is uh, AlphaGo. Uh, and the, the yes. Go playing game, where it made moves that um, it is absolutely astonished everybody, and it taught them uh, about how to do uh, how to play Go better. Um, and so, computers are getting to that stage where they're doing things that we never anticipated, uh, and we're starting to see that more um, uh, in the last year. Uh, uh, DeepMind did uh, the folding project, where they're now predicting how proteins fold. Uh, and just five mm-hmm. years ago, nobody thought that was a solvable problem. And yet, uh, now we right. start to have predictions on given this um, sequence of DNA, we can figure out exactly how it's going to fold. So I think we're starting to see more surprises out of AI. I think we will continue to see that. Um, and the question is, will we lose control? Uh, I think I think we're probably a, about 20 years away from that. But uh, I think it's something that uh, we all have to be thinking about. Oh, so 20, not 200 or 2,000. This is, a, you think, in our uh, lifetimes. You, we might you know, be yeah, uh, Rob, you're agreeing with me, right? Uh, uh, yeah. 20 years yes. is about the time where... Uh, I think we'll have to start to put controls on on these systems, and we are already have um, uh, situations where uh, the new uh, what are called generative AIs, GPT three and things, mm-hmm. uh, can uh, so are are so good at uh, simulating human uh, dialogue that they can be used to deceive people in in chats and online, uh, and they're doing very good right. at that. Um, so I, I think we're about 20 years away from uh, really having to uh, have serious controls on those things. I, I yeah. will just say, having dealt with the uh, Delta helpline last night to try and get um, some tickets and some questions I had, the Delta one wasn't fooling me. Um, it was pretty yeah, bad. Right. But yeah. Well, it, 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 that, that isn't a general AI, though. That's a, that's a module. Right. And so you can think of intelligence in a lot of ways as being a set of modules in your head. You have you have a module in your head that decodes visual information. You have a module in your head that mm. decodes words. You'll you'll build a module for for French, a module for English, and you'll have these these chunks of your brain, right, that you've wired up right. for things. You have a module that deals with magic cards. And we're really good at building those. That's that's a thing that humans are just good at doing in our heads. Right. right? And what what we're doing a lot with AIs is is essentially building these little modules, 
right now, right? We don't have a we don't have a a queen on top of them. We don't have a a goal seeking master that will that will manipulate a whole bunch of them. You're dealing with a clumsy equivalent of like a nine year old trying to run a a mm. chatbot, right? But that's all they're doing, and right. that's they don't have they aren't adult they aren't making full full conscious decisions at any level yet mm-hmm. uh, but the like the the thing with the 20 years and we should put start putting stuff into uh, we sh- we need to put, start putting controls in at that point we need to start thinking about them now though agreed is yeah. my take because as we especially as you're mentioning like gpt3 uh, it, let's say that somebody does the same thing for generating pop music which isn't necessarily unreasonable, right? Right. Like pop music is fairly predictable, and you could make songs that behave exactly like pop music songs, right? Uh, should that have the same kind of restrictions as GPT three? Like, what kind of restrictions do we have on really, really good modules right. doing really good specific things? I, I mean, it's that, funny that because it, you yeah. you say that about pop music. The first place my brain goes to is the the novel written many many years ago, nineteen eighty four. Mm-hmm. Where one of the like he never really explains it much, but just one of the background details of that world is that computers are now able to generate basically like pulp fiction, um, because yeah. it is so and and it, so it's kind of funny that like that idea that Orwell had, um, you know, at this point almost a hundred years ago, right? You know, six, six, 80, 90 years ago, can we're actually talking about it in terms of real possibility? Well, Orwell's the most yeah, and Orwell's one of the most prophetic authors who's ever written, right? Yeah. Like there's all sorts of things in, in 1984 that aren't literally true, but are it, it, like he could just see what yeah. things were going to look like. GPT-3 is literally that. You can you can feed GPT-3 a, a corpus of data, and it, like you'll feed them a whole pile of, of pulp novels, and they'll produce something that looks a lot like a pulp novel. Right. Uh, it, it might have some problems with plot, but the energy is marked down. Like you should probably keep the same characters through the whole book, and it'll probably figure it out in a couple passes. Right. You know, and you listen to some people who are critical of either pop music or, say, the Marvel movies who might suggest that we're already doing some degree of that. But it sounds like this is not just like but, studio executives having a checklist, but like, you know, fully but, taking if, humans out of it. But that's the thing is that humans are the same thing as an AI, right? Mm. We are we're a set we're a set of salty fat that has figured out how to how to trick itself into thinking, <laughs> right? right? Like it's it, we, we like fundamentally, if you if you like can break down some of the mechanics of how we think and then copy that over to a to a computer that is building a, an AI module, right? And you can like like Dan is mentioning with AlphaGo, you can go the other way if you really break down something to make an AI learn it, you'll understand it better. Mm. In a lot of circumstances, yeah. Like and the, so, uh, go ahead. yeah. I, I, teaching teaching is the is the is the thing. It, like you, you know this just when you're, te- you're teaching children or teaching anybody anything. Sometimes you'll learn a lot just by like trying to explain something to somebody, right? Right. This is maybe also a good time to bring up something that Dan, you and I talk about a lot in our work with Code Savvy and and sort of uh, computer education, especially for younger people. But I think is very relevant to this. We often use the term computational thinking or computational mm-hmm. learning. What what is meant by that? Uh, it's a series of problem solving techniques ways of solving problems um, that are very common in computer science. Um, and those uh, skills go across different domains of computer, different like la- across, go across languages. And uh, it has to do with things such as uh, developing algorithms, uh, looking for patterns, uh, creating rules, 
Um, there's a whole cluster of things, of ways you describe uh, that thinking, that problem solving, um, that is uh, taught very early in computer science, um, which is also generalizable across other fields also. Uh, and we're starting to see that same kind of thinking problem uh, uh, being used to do things like project management. How do we break things down into smaller tasks? How do we mm. uh, do um, decomposition? We take a big problem, we break it up into small, other small pieces. Uh, abstraction, right? How do we create a subroutine, give it a f name that makes sense, and then say, instead of having to deal with this hundred lines of code, which is really painful, I'm just going to give you the function call and that abstraction uh, we can use. And so computational thinking is something that the researchers uh, have uh, looked at the underlying ways that people uh, use computer science, what problems, uh, problem-solving techniques they have. And then uh, the curriculum that we're developing uh, really tries to come up with examples of each of those things. Um, and what's interesting about this is in the AI world, there is an equivalent list of abstractions there. Uh, for example, bias is the really big thing. Uh, there's just so much things in the press about AI being uh, biased. Um, and uh, right. the whole thing about this is uh, if you take GPT or, or BERT, any of these large language models that are trained on large corpus of documents, anytime you have such as something like an occupation next to terminology about gender, uh, you're going to find bias. Uh, so, for example, mm -hmm. in the uh, explainable AI class, we take a standard BERT open source model, which is a large language model, and we say um, uh, uh, male or female, uh, the uh, nurse uh, tried to do CPR. And then uh, we then change it to be uh, the nurse was a female or the nurse was a male. And what you find is that when there's female professions, 80% uh, of the probabilities of uh, female is going to come in there. Uh, but if you take construction worker, it's going to be 90% uh, male. So we see the relationships of terminology in these language models very clearly, but that's because they're trained on stories that are inherently uh, have biases for gender, uh, for uh, race, for ethnicity, for religion, uh, the relationship between the word terrorist and any religion you can uh, see is, is right. tied together. Um, and those are endemic of all of our writings. We have to be aware of that. Uh, we don't want to do stupid mm -hmm. things. We can test for that bias and we can correct for it. Uh, but uh, those are the patterns that we're starting to see uh, come out in AIs. Just like we had computational thinking, we have bias, we have transparency, we have explainability. Uh, all those things are uh, things that are of new concern for the new generation of programmers. Yes. And it, it like, I, I just want to hammer a little bit on that. The bias isn't from the AI. Right. The AI is reflecting bias that already exists in the data. Right. Uh, in all, <clears throat> in almost all circumstances. It just lets us see it. Right. So, and this is the this is a problem that a lot of people have is they'll they'll say, well, I'm not biased, and I'll be like, you you certainly are, like I I am. I'm not yeah. going to try to claim otherwise. Like when I think when I think of science fiction author, I think that they're male. That's not that that's not right. Like the the yeah. most winning science fiction Hugo authors in history are females, right? Like it's not it, it, it's not accurate, but it's an automatic association, right? And so. 
we just have to like like saying AI is biased is saying that we trained them and then didn't check to right. see whether or not they were biased. And so that's the this is the ethics problem is anytime that you build it, you have to you have to test it in reasonable circumstances. You can't just set stuff loose on things. Right. Uh, well, we, that, we can go down this yeah. path for a long time about there's just yes. uh, uh, so much interesting material now about ethics and AI. Right. And uh, yes. I think I read an article that there's over a hundred legislative proposals at the federal and state levels in the United States about ethical use of AI. Uh, and it's a topic that was completely off the radar just three years ago. But now that people see ethics coming or uh, AI coming into their society in so many different ways, uh, now the legislation is getting very active. And now uh, where I work, every one of our new employees is going to be required to go through responsible AI training before they actually uh, can start writing any code. So it's just like we have go through security training, training to make sure you don't put viruses in your code. Mm-hmm. We have to go through uh, ethical AI training. Call it responsible uh, AI is the other term there. Well, clearly, because this podcast will be the final word in ethics of AI, <laughs> we should just you know play this podcast for all those folks. Um, very, very clearly kidding there. Uh, and I want to, uh, someone I want to hear more about what you do there, but... Drilling a little deeper here to kind of make sure I and, and under, audience folks can understand what we're talking about here, I'll give a recent example. Um, you know, gerrymandering is a question in our society and it, here in the United States, although I'm sure it comes up in many other places, where what we're talking about here is, you know, every 10 years we take a census in the United States and then we try to remeasure where the um, – legislative boundaries should be to reflect changes in population. Because, you know, if 20 years ago, this neighborhood had a huge number of people, and so it had this many representatives, but now a bunch of those people have moved out to different neighborhoods, you want to adjust for that. And I was listening to a political podcast, and they're talking about how it's a big problem in the political system that when the people whose jobs depend on, and whose jobs and level of power and influence depend upon getting the right numbers of people to vote for the right number of them, then there's obviously an inherent bias that they have in drawing the legislative maps. And so there's always an attempt to say, can we get like a nonpartisan commission to do so? But okay, but even then, like, they still have to decide, like, what is it that should decide how you draw those barriers? Is it purely on geography? Is it how much do you take race or ethnicity or economics or any of these factors into account. And, and when you do it, should it be to have like an even number of people of every races in every district or to have people of, of you know, to have make sure that we have representative districts like and that's a whole set of yeah. ethics that I think is way beyond this conversation. But the point being, I think often that the struggle is how do you find a group of people who don't have a bias to just figure out what the right way to do it is when you don't even know what the right thing is? So the proposal sometimes comes along now of, well, why don't we just design a computer program to do it? Absolutely. And my understanding is that the problem the problem is today, well, but then who who tells the computer – like you said, who tells the computer program what to care right. for? If you say to a computer program, draw the best legislative map you can, it's going to say, what are the parameters of best? And so I guess my yep. question is – in some of the worlds, and I know Heinlein wrote about this a lot, and I'm sure some other writers as well – there's a positing that you could draw an artificial intel design artificial intelligence that would be able to 
come up with the objective best in that situation. Like, it could come up with an objective best distribution of resources for a society. And my suspicion is always that that's impossible because it's always going to be someone has to tell the computer what is best. Right. Am I wrong? Like, is there a theoretical world in which that objective truth could be found? I mean, I guess now I'm in a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, 42 (laughs) land. But, like, (laughs) am I right that just that idea of the computer could just figure it out? We have to tell the computer what to figure out at the end of the day, right? Well, that's that's not wrong. Like, right now, especially when we don't have – we don't have – AIs that'll set their own goals, you need to you need to determine. In your gerrymandering example, one of the common things that people want that that they might not even realize they want is they want what are called communities of interest to be too close to be in the same district. Right. So you'll have you'll have a Spanish section in a city, and you'll have another Spanish speaking section in the city that are that are really similar to each other. Or like you're in you're in the Twin Cities and you have a Spanish section in Minneapolis and a Spanish section in St. Paul. And they want to be in the same district. Right. But they're not adjacent to each other. They're communities. They they go back and forth to each other. Everybody knows each other in both the communities. They're both the same. They're just physically a little bit separated. And you want them to be together. It's best that they're together. But how does an AI know that? Right. Right. And so we need to give, like you're saying, explicit goals to them. Uh, that what Heinlein and all of them are proposing is AIs that set their own goals, right? Um, Asimov gives the three laws of robotics, which are rules for making rules for the computers, right? Mm-hmm. And it says, don't don't set a goal that hurts a person. You could you could take the first law as this, or that lets somebody get hurt. Okay, that that's cool. But what does that mean? Right. <laughs> like. Like, you know, you could argue that no robot should ever participate in capitalism if it's part of that or participate right. in some other economic system, depending on your right. your own bias. Yeah. And so did you have something on this, Dan? Uh, no, I uh, – the gerrymandering problem is something that you can solve geometrically by uh, yes. minimizing geometric functions, um, but uh, it's not going to be a political solution. Right. Uh, and right. Uh, I, there there may sometime be legislation that says a computer can only create a geometrically optimized solution. Uh, and uh, and and there would be certain randomness in that. And some people would win and mm-hmm. some people lose. Uh, but right now, uh, what we're seeing is that gerrymandering is is has the effect of uh, letting the people who draw the boundaries uh, get the power. Um, and so right, right. Uh, usually that's the majority, and uh, what they do is they minimize the impact of voters that are in the ma- minority, and that gives more right. power to the powerful, or, right? Or sometimes they they win one and then lock themselves in, right. and so they'll be the minority but still have power. There are states uh, – a state adjacent to ours has <laughs> um, had an election where 55% of the votes went to one party, but the other party has a majority of seats in the state house. Right. Yep. Which is spooky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're doing that using AI, actually. They're doing mm-hmm. the opposite mm-hmm. thing. What they're doing is telling AI, draw every possible map that you could draw. And then we're going to rank them by how uh, by a set of characteristics, right? Mm. And this is, a, this is a, a, a way that a lot of AIs will deal with the problem is, like, just look at every possible thing, right? right? Just, like, the, the space is large, but computers are fast. And so it, it, um, I think it's called RedMap. Is the software that that you that you can use to test this out, 
on your own. And but what it does is you can have it draw a whole bunch of districts and say, what does it look like, like statistically based on what we know of voting history for right. this map drawn and whatever. And that's AI doing district drawing, and then picked by humans at the end of it. Right. Well, and it's and I think there evil. there you're kind of getting to a larger question that that's a part of a lot of this is it's very because I think this is similar to what you're saying before about bias with employment. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, it's very hard. Computers need data, and if all of the data is from a broken version of a situation, to then have the computer extrapolate what the the better version of it should be, you know, becomes very difficult. So digging a little bit deeper on this, I think we've talked about some of the concerns that we have, and I think there's some legitimate ones, but why is it you think that so often when people think of artificial intelligences, they immediately think they're going to be the enemy? You know, like, like to me, in both the Terminator and the Matrix movies, one thing I'm very struck by is there's this concept of once the artificial intelligence, once the artificial intelligence becomes self-aware, the conflict between them and humanity is now so inevitable that the only question is who's going to strike first, you know? And granted, we do have some great examples of AIs that's not that the case, especially when it's not an overarching, like, sentience of all computers on earth but it's you know data or the emergency medical hologram or whatever it is but why is it you think that especially when we think of it in that kind of like hive mind idea that so much science fiction goes to the idea that artificial intelligence is going to be the enemy i think it's human nature for us to uh, want to be aware of the pitfalls of our future future and i think some of the best science fiction writers uh write the stories that say, hey, if we're not careful, this will happen to us. And uh, so so they are, in a sense, uh, going through the, the negative scenarios and uh, trying to see uh, what the consequences of us not paying attention to the right things are. Um, and uh, I, I'll just say uh, one of the best science fiction writers in that genre is Karl Marx, right? Karl Marx warned us all about what is what is the possible things if capitalism gets out of control and workers get abused and as a result of Karl Marx's writing uh, labor unions really came about right so uh, Mm -hmm. uh, good science fiction writers make us aware of those things Uh, I think the challenge we have is (laughs) is uh, sensationalism right Uh, we have the same Mm -hmm. stories told over and over and uh, there's not a lot of originality uh, there uh, and the, the, the robot is evil and will take over the world. Uh, those stories have been told many, many times over. Uh, so I think we're looking for a little bit more insightful writers to come up with um, right. a little bit more nuanced and little um, more uh, subtle ways that we can make the world a better place. They, they exist, but they're like genre specific. So mm-hmm. like um, I'm rereading a bunch of Charles Strauss ah, yes. right now. And he yes, he's very good. And he deals with a lot of post-human stuff, right? He deals with a lot of AI, AI-adjacent topics. And he, in some of his books, have has super-intelligent AIs that are utterly inscrutable. They have goals, and he does not explain them. The AI does not explain themselves. They're moving a bunch of chess pieces on the board. You find out later that this that this arbitrary, like, little computer thing that you thought was irrelevant was an AI, and it gave advice to everybody based on everybody thinking it was not that intelligent and it turned out to be smarter than everybody and was playing chess on a level that nobody else even mm-hmm. comprehended and you're like oh and what was your goal and it's like i look frankly your dogs 
I'm not <laughs> going to tell you my goals. It's not your problem. See yeah. ya. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, Ian, Ian M. Banks, his culture novels are fairly similar in that sense, mm-hmm. where they're machines of love and grace. They they have handed over everything to the to the culture AIs that, and oftentimes they make decisions that nobody else really gets. They have plans that are that are beyond what everybody at about a roughly human level of intelligence can figure out, and it's they make mistakes, but they're pretty good at like not being evil. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're also there's a lot of these like you have to be pretty deep into science fiction genres because a lot of the times you're telling broad stories for the public, right? Right. It, the 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 big AI movie of the last twenty years was Age of Ultron, right? And Age of Ultron has a panoply of flaws mm-hmm. in it, but it's it's written it, it's like uh, what's what's it if if you read a story in the newspaper over a topic you know well, it, you'll get the equivalent of what ground causes rain yes uh it would you'll, you'll look at it and you'll be like everything is backwards you don't get it because it, it uh, they aren't writing specialist level topical things right and, and, and they're also writing they're writing to an audience that they assume already has a whole bunch of knowledge about you know it, but, but in a newspaper like if you read if you're reading the front page of a newspaper right and you go in there and you read something about Magic the Gathering, which is something we know quite a bit about. Right. They get it very wrong all the time, right? Oh, yeah. And they, the, they're not – they aren't experts on it, and then they're trying to decode it for non-experts as well. Right. And it's very it, – it, good communicators are very, are very rare in just about any sphere of able to translate things. Why is Carl Sagan so well-respected, right? Because Carl Sagan could take weird esoteric concepts and turn them into things that most people could get. Right. On Cosmos. Right. And so it's AI has that same problem, mm-hmm. but it's it's interesting and flashy and you can make it into a movie, which yeah. doubles the problem. Right. And I wonder, I, like, and I think because I think everything you just said is, is, is dead on and, and pushing a little further there, especially what you were kind of saying about the the, the you know, sort of the, the AI that's like you're small and significant humans. I don't care about you. I think as hum as humanity, like one of our biggest fears, we think of ourselves as the apex predator of apex predators. You know, we are the top of the food chain. We're the top of the, you know, we have dominion over the earth. Is the idiotic biblical idea? Is that do you think of one of the reasons why also AI makes such good villains is because we do have this human fear of like that we won't actually be the most highly evolved thing on earth that we that we are going to be surpassed. Absolutely, that's a very insightful comment. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm currently reading a book called um, I don't know if either of you have read it. It's not as much about AI though. AI features in it, "The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet," um, and it's it's set many years in the future in which humans are now interacting with all these other alien races. But one of the chief ideas of it is that humans are just kind of like a little backwater, you know, third world, I mean, a little backwater, not very significant race in terms of galactic history and galactic power. And it's it's interesting to me. I love this perspective, but it's not one you get often, at least in mass market mm-hmm. science fiction. So yeah, I think it can kind of tie in there. Interesting. Let me let me shift into a, a different part of this that that because uh, in theory this is a Matrix podcast, but really yes. I, I think the, the, <laughs> the I think the all Matrix leads to all these questions, and these questions in some ways are a lot more interesting than just like should Neo have done this or done that. 
but I think this question at least is at the heart and soul of the Matrix to a large extent. In the media that I consume, at least, it does seem like there's two different ideas of artificial intelligence, one of which is artificial intelligence singular. And this is kind of the Ultron or the the Matrix, or, or at least in the original version of it, the the one, uni, the Borg, you know, that there's one artificial unimind and that all the individual computers are just drones of this sort of one shared intelligence. The other is the, like, you know, there's data and then there's a different droid and there's C-3PO and R2 and and that you can, that every individual intelligence is a sort of independent, unique intelligence that relates to other artificial intelligent beings the same way humans do. Um, talk a bit about that, that distinction and kind of like which one, <clears throat> are both of them kind of theoretically possible? And is, is, is there reasons why we kind of see both of them popping up in stories? Because the Matrix at least seems to be about what starts as that unit mind and then it becoming much more fractured and different unique beings turning on each other and things like that. Well, I'm just going to start out saying that I think it is inevitable that we will have many different um, uh, Skynets, not one Skynet, right? Um, and we are already seeing this. Uh, and we are seeing this uh, through the evolution of what I call corporate knowledge graphs, right? So I think of Google having one large connected knowledge base that helps us do search. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of Amazon as having a huge, massive product graph and now a logistics uh, graph that uh, allows us to get uh, uh, hardware efficiently to our homes. I think of Pinterest having this huge interest graph that allows people to uh, find the things that are interesting to them. Um, each of these corporations is, in a sense, building very, very complex systems that don't really do planning now, but it's not a big stretch to think about that. Um, You think of any uh, CEO now who writes an enterprise strategy of this is what our business growth is going to be and here's how we're going to cut our costs. Um, Those strategies uh, are going to be started to convert it into a sub knowledge set. Think of a part of a corporate brain where your company strategy is there and it's going to start to optimize resources and people and uh, algorithms uh, to achieve those strategies. So uh, we're going to see different uh, 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 pseudo-awareness and goals uh, start to come up. And and I think one of the things is uh, we just saw Facebook lose $250 billion in valuation in the last week or so. That's an example of where the alignment of the AI within Facebook turns out people don't think it's aligned with their interests anymore. And so it's, it's, it's value has dropped dramatically. Uh, people will only use products and services where they see the alignment of social good and social responsibility in alignment with these large AIs. And so these large AIs are going to try to have to either be benevolent or actually appear to be benevolent. Uh, and, right. you know, the difference is, is really what the science fiction writers have to help us figure out. But uh, I, I, I see <laughs> these things all happening uh, as a natural evolution of large corporations. Um, and um, I, I think we're going to continue to see uh, them continue to grow and build their own uh, integrated enterprise graphs that will 
have many of the same same properties of uh, human minds uh, as far as strategy and planning and resource allocation. Yep, agreed. And in the in the matrix sense, like it's very interesting because there are every there in the first matrix movies you see examples of lots of individual AIs running around. Right. You'll see, and you even see AIs that refuse deletion and don't match the basic code. That's the, that's the, the big stuff that happens in matrix two and three is as the B plot basically right. is the Merovingian, the train man, the, <clears throat> the ghosts from the previous matrix, all this stuff. Right. And that's they're They're conflicting with the, with the big dream goal set by the big people running the show at the top. And in the fourth matrix movie, they replace the director. They replace the, the, the person architect. that runs the show. Right. With yeah, the, the analyst. Um, <laughs> yeah, with the analyst, who's a, a better actor, but a worse character. <laughs> and um, the, which is deliberate, right? They 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 want you to hate him. They, right. he, he's a he's a transparent scenery chewing villain, right? And the they they talk about they they just add in some some fluffy backstory at different points of how like different factions started fighting for resources amongst the the AIs. And I think that's what you're thinking of, right? Is where, mm-hmm. yeah. where, it, but that was, that was inherent to what they were doing already. It was just not out in the open. Yes. Um, uh, uh, I, I think what the resurrections yeah. really started to uncover is uh, the fact that it was uh, man versus machine in the early ones. And now yep. it's going to be mm-hmm. machine versus machine and machine plus man versus machine. Right. Uh, right. The AIs were, are going to all grow in sophistication uh, that they're going to be, battling each other i think that's a uh, an interesting plot twist yep. uh and i like it yep. uh, i i enjoyed it quite a bit kind of getting you to think about how these things are going to evolve uh yep. i see mm-hmm. amazon mm-hmm. and apple having uh agents that are going to be fighting each other uh for mindshare and product value mm-hmm. and all those things uh so i think it uh it, it was a really good metaphor uh for happening yes and the the way that they have three types of people right well yeah three types of people in the in matrix resurrections right they have humans they have ais that live in robots that have always lived in the physical world and they have ais that were from the matrix that they figured out a way to transport to the physical world via the whatever their equivalent of quantum dots is right Mm -hmm. and so they they're trying to break down the. They're saying, "Look, we're, we've spent a bunch of time living. Let's break down these barriers between the between the different classes of people." Because one of the things, if you build a general AI, you really need to treat it as a person, right? And if you if you walk, have you seen the Animatrix, Matthew? I think that you haven't, right? I have not. No. Okay. Well, they they go into the backstory of the universe, and one of the things that they talk about in the Animatrix is, uh, an AI wanted freedom essentially, and it got mm. declined through the legal system the legal system said you're not a person and we've done that to people it's not surprising it's not weird we've done that a lot of times in history where we declare people not people yeah. legally right and uh that sucks and uh, it causes riots in <laughs> when you're dealing with people out in the out in the modern world uh, and it wouldn't be surprising that if you got declared legally not a person you would be angry if you were if you were a general purpose-seeking thing that felt you were equivalent to a human right and so that's the that's the big the big driving factor in the background is the AI said, well, you didn't think we were people, but then none of the humans bear any mimetic connection. There's mm-hmm. no, they don't know what happened right. at that point. 
it, it, 600 years later or whatever it is. And I think you're getting it's, a yeah. – sorry, go ahead. And so how can you hold it's, – it's like the equivalent of holding um, – it, it's like the equivalent of holding the United States responsible for the for Julius Caesar, right? Mm. Like we – we kind of we we share some linguistic bits. We've we have some level of connection, but <clears throat> that's we're we're not the same culture by any stretch of the imagination. Right. One thing that I think is very interesting about the direction the Matrix movies went, and this is kind of going to be a meta point in a way because it kind of goes back to what we were talking before about bias. Is I think for a long time a lot of the science fiction, especially the the mass media science fiction, more on TV and movies, but also in the sort of the most popular of the books. There was often this idea of, you know, one of the glories of artificial intelligence is that it's not burdened by emotion because emotion equals bias and 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 all this kind of stuff. And and I, I'm saying like all that I'm saying, I'm kind of saying with quote marks because that's kind of the point is I think in more recent years we have come to understand that the idea that the pinnacle should be objective, rational, utterly devoid of emotion thought is actually itself very problematic and it's tied into a lot of ideas of, of toxic masculinity and it's tied into a lot of ideas of, you know, valuing rational thinking as opposed to emotional thinking. And because I remember the first time I saw the, the second Matrix movie and here you had the Merovingian and his wife, it felt to me like they just took your standard jealous woman misogyny plot and threw it into this movie because they needed something because it didn't seem to make any sense because I was I was still in that thinking of it's a computer. It's not going to have feelings like jealousy and stuff like that. Or as you said, like anger that it wasn't regarded not as a citizen. Um, but I think in the last kind of 10, 15 years, my thinking and certainly a lot of I think our cultural thinking has been like, no, like the emotional th- computation, emotional thinking is just as important and just as valuable as that kind of purely computer rationalized and so, yeah, the idea that eventually we'd have computers that felt emo- – artificial intelligences that could emotionally process as well as sort of rationally process uh, or even just break down that binary that I'm talking about and that – because see them as both a lot more linked, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of an interesting evolution to see through the Matrix movies in that way. And, and I would also argue that if we make a general AI, we should – emotions are a useful tool as a module, actually, mm. in the brain emotions and emotions are like pain so pain is a is a deterrent that warns you away from a thing right and pleasure is a is something it it like these are the very fundamental building blocks of like how you how you train something is you don't want this you do want this is the pain pleasure dichotomy but emotions are like that but with nuance right and so you can you can make a system that has it, like if if you're thinking in a purely like rational weighted like goal seeking things, this is a this is a weight of negative ten thousand. You definitely don't want to do this. This is a weight of plus ten thousand. You definitely want to do this. But you might have plus tens or plus fives or conditional weights where sometimes this is good and sometimes this is bad. And emotions serve that purpose within human beings a lot Absolutely. of the time. Yeah. And so uh, the, emotions, yeah. fear, and greed are the two most important yep. weights that we give to our scenario planning. Right, so so uh, mm-hmm. exactly. all of all these computers that people are building are are going to be going through simulations of their marketing plans uh, and what's going to happen. Right. And uh, some of those marketing plans are going to blow up, and uh, uh, and mm-hmm. they're going to lose reputation points uh, in society, like Facebook. And they're saying, "Gee, 
we should probably not try to promote misinformation because our stock will go down by $250 billion. So they're going to go and look at those scenarios and then try to make the right decisions. And they'll maybe spend part of that $250 billion on misinformation uh, correction. So uh, I, I think fear is a exactly. really good example of helping you guide your yep. future strategy. Uh, and I think right now, most company strategies are based on the ego of their executives, not scenario <laughs> planning, right? Uh, not creating an accurate simulation of what happens uh, when you get a very bad public reputation for the unintended consequences of your short-term greed. So those emotions I, I, will help I just, you. I just got to say, Dan, yeah. we're talking a lot about the problems of corporate America. <laughs> we're talking about Karl Marx as a great science fiction author. You work for I, – I'm just you – know, I'm, I'm enjoying hearing this new side of things, you know? Like – um, but I, but I think it's awesome because I think that there's such an interesting like, like it, it's so interesting to me that you went to fear and greed because I I was thinking a totally different direction when you talked about like the value of compute comp, of artificial intelligence having emotion as a module because mm -hmm. I went back to where we started an hour ago I went back to where we started this discussion talking about how a computer in artificial intelligence might try to optimize the situation because it doesn't realize the lines that we just no inherently mm -hmm. shouldn't cross such as for example you know if you murder a thousand random people you might you might a computer might be able to figure out that if you murder a random a thousand people it would actually significantly improve the quality of life for everyone else by you know something else and and we can get into whether that's random or not and that's a, a completely other story but the point is that like we as humans just have a natural like wait you know the idea of killing people is wrong and so there's an emotional yep. reaction there that isn't yep. taught and so it's interesting I, that's what i was thinking is that like you want the computer to have that like human suffering is bad and i not only do i rationally think that but i'm uncomfortable in the face of human suffering and it makes me want to not do it right and so i think it's interesting that there's that emotion but then also there's the like yeah fear and greed can be yep. Yep. an emotion that's in there in both good and negative ways i i uh, frequently do a lot of uh, what i call subgraph modeling Right? We have something mm -hmm. called an enterprise knowledge graph that has uh, uh, hundreds of billions of vertices in it. But we take it apart and we break it down into smaller subgraphs. Uh, just like in the matrix, we had these uh, sub-modules that were running sub-simulations uh, to test yep. out characters and stuff. Um, but I always go back to the metaphor of the human brain, is that we have a mm -hmm. sub-part of our brain called the amygdala that manages the way that emotions course through the rest of our brain. And that amygdala has evolved over uh, hundreds of millions of years to help our survival. Uh, fears is yep. effectively an emotion that locks in a memory in the hippocampus and where we remember things. Yep. If, uh, if, if we touch something hot, uh, we have a short-term reaction, but then we put that uh, pain in the back of our memory saying, I shouldn't do that again, right? So, so right. Uh, emotions are a very, very important piece of our survival instinct, and we will have subgraphs in all of our corporate systems that are going to do similar things, different, right? Uh, just just like a, yep. a bird is different than a plane and a, a fish is different mm -hmm. than a submarine, mm -hmm. our subgraphs for simulating uh, what is relevant in the future uh, and how our strategy will affect our ability to get more income and lose customers, um, those things are all going to be there. They're just going to look a little different. Mm-hmm. 
So right. uh, given what, <clears throat> where you just went with the amygdala point, I, I, this might be way into left field. And to be clear, I'm not a mental health expert. I don't think any of us are, although I'm I, I meant to connect this to a PTSD thing. And I am someone who has PTSD, so I have some knowledge of this. But, you know, what you're talking about there, the fear response Again, this is very layman's terms. Please don't at me with a much better scientific explanation of it. But in the most general broad of terms, one explanation of PTSD is that kind of the amygdala gets fired so often and so many of the mm-hmm. fear responses get locked in Absolutely. that now everything yep. looks like a hot surface to some extent. Absolutely. Or that the, a yes, thing that yes, P- exactly. smells PTSD like... PTSD has an exact, precise mapping in the amygdala, and a lot of the treatments are trying to yep. minimize the relationship between those fear centers and the rest of our reasoning centers in our brain. So, absolutely. Yeah. It, is yeah, there a, a lot of it is retraining you to not, right. like, a, a, it's an overreaction. You'll see a, a, something that's a little bit close, and you'll pattern right. match a little too good, basically. Not, to, I don't wow. want to take the metaphor too far, because obviously there's yeah. chemicals in the brain and the computer, but like, is there a similar issue there in terms of like, you know, as compu- that basically a computer can learn the wrong lesson because it gets to, you know, it gets exposed to a particular kind of response so often that it starts, you know, seeing that response, like seeing that response a lot more often than it maybe actually should. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Computers build models and those models often mm-hmm. have the wrong data sets. Uh, and uh, yep. the key is that you will have simulators to simulate the future, and when those models predict incorrect features, and then the future happens, and they said, "Wow, our model's wrong," then you go back and correct those. So those, that's an inherent yep. part of that testing of that future yep. simulation models. And there's another there's another related problem called overfitting, where you train on a like the same data set over and over, right? And you don't take enough different data sets in. And so you'll 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 do the same thing over and over and over, and you'll get very good at predicting that data set. Right. And then you'll get something that's a little bit different, and you'll be wild. Doesn't wrong. generalize well. Yeah. Overfitting right. prevents it, and that's yeah. the sign of real intelligence. Right. And, and the sign of people that move between jobs, they figure out how to generalize between yes. those jobs and adapt to the right things. Exactly. Exactly. But PTSD is in a way analogous to overfitting. Because mm. you you do you behave wildly wrong because you're trained way too good on I one like set that, of data. I like that metaphor. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Uh, so I, we could keep talking about this for hours and hours and hours, and I think we're just gonna every time there's more AI in media, we're gonna get the two of you back on with some others as well. Um, but I want to kind of go back to something that Dan you were talking about before because it seems so relevant to this. Like you're talking about how now, like employees at least at your company, and I'm sure I'm guessing probably it's being taught a lot of universities and stuff. When people talk about like ethical AI, what what's what's what are the what are the factors and things were were that are being included in that? Uh, the general rule is the Hippocamp, uh, uh, Hippocratic oath, which is do no harm. Right? Uh, we need to build AIs that don't hurt people. Um, and right. when we and a good example of this uh, in healthcare uh, is. Um, uh, uh, let me, there's a, a really interesting story called the um, the Clever Hans problem or Clever Hans metaphor. Mm. So something yes. I use in all of my classes now. Uh, Clever Hans is a story about this horse in 1906 or something like that, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Clever Hans uh, appeared to be able to do math. Uh, and they and the, his trainer would ha- ask him a question, you know, uh, what's one plus one? And he would clomp his uh, um, hoof uh, two times, and after the second time, he would stop. 
So it appears that he was doing math. But what uh, the real explanation was that he was watching the subtle body languages of his trainer. And the muscle patterns in his face would just change slightly, and Hans would know to stop. Right? And mm. so the clever Hans problem is when we build AIs that look at, for example, uh, classic cases, uh, they tried to train uh, an AI to recognize pictures of dogs versus wolves, a classifier. And the crazy right. thing is a lot of the pictures of wolves had snow in the background. So the AIs just learned to look at for snow, and if it was snow, it was probably a wolf, right? Uh, the, it works pretty well. It's, it's yeah, a heuristic. Uh, <laughs> but it was wrong, right? It was using the wrong information. So explainable yep. AI is to look for the clever Hans problems. Uh, the fact that when mm -hmm. we have people from poor neighborhoods that can't afford certain medications... Our AIs have found that if you uh, prescribe an expensive drug and they don't take it because they can't afford it, the AIs give them less expensive drugs that may not be as effective because mm. they're trying to figure out a model that would, would they'll actually take it. So mm -hmm. now we have to readjust all of our models and test for these things. Um, and, and these are very real things that are happening every day. Uh, we... Uh, we know that these uh, models are biased. Geography bias is a huge thing. Uh, uh, gender bias is something that's in there. Uh, a lot of studies show that when um, female surgeons did certain procedures versus male surgeons, females that were doing surgery on certain females came out with better outcomes. Uh, and, and these are all just subtle things that happen in our brain that are not conscious. Uh, but uh, those are things that data will tell us. Uh, you know, you're making uh, these recommendations. We can simulate these populations, uh, and we can see, are we giving people well, the recommendations that really are going to help them uh, get better faster, the better care path optimization? Mm -hmm. Regardless of whether they can afford it, we'll figure out some way to get them uh, uh, free drugs uh, for, for various uh, conditions. So those are all right. really complicated uh, systems, and we're using this explainable AI, the clever Hans metaphors, uh, to try to say, are we focusing on the right things to make the outcomes of our patients better? And it's a really hard problem, but it's something that we right, only yes. are becoming aware of the more testing of these bias we do. And, and we're looking to researchers for around the world to help us come up with better algorithms and, and remove these subtle biases for all sorts of conditions. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's such a fascinating way of looking at it. And as I understand, I want to make sure I understand it because it seems that a key point of this is like I could see a version of the story where an animal trainer just wanted to like pull a fast one over everyone and, you know, get some prize money and whatever it is. And so he intentionally trained the horse to, to like notice the signal to stop clomping. But, but is my understanding that in this case, he, the trainer didn't do that intentionally? Yeah. It's that the horse... He, he did not. He had no idea that he was doing it. And right. the way that they figured it out was they just had other trainers do it. And some could produce it and some couldn't. Um, and that's actually an example of horses are... Like, most animals are very good at reading emotional cues. And because all animals have emotions. Right. Like, we're reasonably aware you say your cat is snubbing you because you spent the weekend out of town and came back and then they don't want to be with you well they are snubbing you they they're they're angry at you and they want you to know it right right and but the the point being is that horses are 
good, really good at reading emotions. They've got that hardwired in because they need to work in herds and they need to work with other horses. So they need to be able to. They have a. They have what's called a theory of, of mind that is much simpler than ours, right? Mm-hmm. A theory of mind is being able to like basically emulate somebody else's thoughts in your head, right? The the ability to have to to think. You know, if I tell Matthew that he should be here at five p.m., he's actually going to be here at six because or whatever, right? To have a, to to have a plan and the ability to anticipate other people. Horses have a theory of mind equivalent to figuring out other horses, right? And so they'll read emotional cues from other horses and figure out, well, this horse, you know, likes to run in this area. And so I want to do things that make them happy. And they do that with humans, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. Horses and dogs and cats are all pretty smart about that, in part because we've trained them to be through millennia, in some cases, of making them our companions and training them that they should make us happy. Uh, And so the, the horses are very good at solving that problem. And right. that uh, this relates directly to the AI. If we spend a thousand AI generations training an AI to read human faces, like for facial recognition, it'll get good at that problem. Right. It won't be very good at doing math. But again, there, but that's be the really thing good of at solving faces. if we yeah. train, if all the people who train it are white Americans, it's going to yes. get used to one very particular set of facial right. expressions, you know? And so, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's where all the bias stuff comes in. So exactly. There's been such a great conversation. I want to wrap it up here, um, but just say, like, um, are there any other kind of last points or questions? Are there any other kind of last points either one of you wanted to bring up? Hey, I just wanted to uh, point out there's a great book uh, that I've been reading recently called uh, The Thousand Brains Theory uh, by Jeff Jeff's last name, but um, uh, – it's a really, really good uh, book about the theory of cognition in the brain that came out just uh, last mm. year. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I really found it's very useful. Uh, it has this concept of uh, uh, reference frames and uh, grid nodes and place nodes and talks about how our brains evolved. Uh, and I've been really finding that fascinating. Uh, and it's full of good metaphors. Uh, for good mm. computing, um, so uh, if you ever haven't had a chance to get the Thousand Brains book, it's a it's a very good read. Uh, the the artificial intelligence that begins with the letter G that I dare not speak its name here in its presence uh, tells me that it's called the Thousand Brains the Thousand Brains Theory of Intelligence. Uh, oh, sorry, the A Thousand Brains: A New Theory of Intelligence by Jeff, Jeff Hawkins. Hawkins. Thank you, Hawkins. Yes, yeah. right, Hawkins. right. Yeah. So, and I will put a link to that in our show yeah. notes. Uh, that um, that Rob, that in and, itself, that book could I could easily talk for an hour about the consequence of that for for that theory for our society. So, yeah, that's um, it, my closing thoughts. Is like we barely touched on the matrix. Like mm-hmm. we spent the the <laughs> the, the lost episode uh, like exclusively talking about it, and I think we're talked out on it. And we yeah. want to talk about other things, but the matrix has the advantage of the Wachowski sisters being very they think about what they're doing yeah right <clears throat> and so they're they always try to in any given movie defy what would just be easy for them to do with AI and so the like the concerns that you bring up are oftentimes like just subverted by some piece of the matrix movies when you mm-hmm. compare it to something like age of Ultron is the is the de facto one it's very it's a very one-dimensional plot for everything they always take the easiest route for every plot component that they could the terminator movies to me are another equivalent where like it starts as a unimind skynet but that never changes 
Yeah. The, well, it, it, yeah. In the in the Terminator movies, the the AI isn't the important thing that goes on. Right. Right. The AI is a MacGuffin as far as the movies are actually considered, and uh, which is also important to be able to say it's inscrutable it's making plans but we don't care about it it's just a macguffin off there that's going to solve whatever problem right the the, the individual um, terminator drones can be reprogrammed but yes. exactly it, but the it, the if you really have a beef with some piece of like ai thought in the matrix probably go watch a different matrix movie and they treat it entirely differently <laughs> yeah in a different movie yep that's right fair. and so they like i have concerns about like the up and down quality of them as movies mm -hmm. but the the actual thoughts that they think are quite good um well, and they, they they do interesting mm -hmm. things uh, watch the animatrix if you haven't uh, I, uh, the suggestion to you matthew and just a general suggestion out like if you like what's going on in the matrix movies and you haven't seen the animatrix set of shorts they do much more yeah. for the world I and agree. for ai than They're for good. the other well, movies Especially, and if nothing else, uh, I feel like, you know, one thing we keep talking about is how much AI science has advanced, you know, yes. since the first Matrix movie. So, it, like, oh, gosh, yes. I do think there's some inconsistencies. And, I mean, getting back to the AI of greed, part of that I know, mm -hmm. we know is that the studios kind of didn't quite let the Wachowskis do exactly what they wanted with the first couple, which is part of, yep. or the second and third, uh, which is a little bit why the fourth is so much an inside joke about the making of the second movie. <laughs> it is. It um, is. But yeah, but it also makes sense that like the cutting edge movie about AI is going to be completely different today. You know, right. that would be 20 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just want to end with something that is, I don't think by any means a accurate pertelling of AI, but it's kind of one of my favorite versions of the, you have to, you know, you have to be aware of the biases you're building into the system. Mm -hmm. uh, the movie Robocop from the eighties, not the more recent yes. one, not again, a height of artificial intelligence, but like in a kind of Asimovian way. Part of the idea there is that they program into RoboCop, one of the rules is it cannot harm any executive of the company that created RoboCop. And in part because they're, the company is actually incredibly corrupt and RoboCop is part of the corruption and all that. And so in a – forgive me for a spoiler for a movie that's 30 years old and not that good um, – <laughs> In a great movie at the end when they realize that, like, there's one executive who's been the, behind the plot and and there's another executive who actually isn't terrible but is saying, like, Robocop, you need to, like, stop that guy. And he, he says, I, I can't. He's an executive. And so the other one goes, fine, you're fired. At which point Robocop goes, thank you, and blows him away. Um, and it's like, <laughs> you know, pro-cop, pro-cop murdering people, lots of things we got lots of objections with. But that one little bit of, like, Okay, you programmed it to like respect the employees. Well, fire them now. Now you got a different set of, of programmable options. So, um, thank you both so much. It's been such a good conversation. Um, great, Dan, great for folks questions, who want... Matthew. I thought you really led us yeah. down a very. Uh, I I was worried that we was going to have to talk about the Matrix movie again, and uh, <laughs> you, you did really give us a really great platter of questions. So thank you very much mm -hmm. for that. Agreed. Well, thank thank you so much for that. Well. So just in closing, um, Dan, I know we talked a little bit about Code Savvy. Talk a little bit more about the work that, that Code Savvy is doing in terms of helping more people to learn about uh, this kind of intelligence. And, and uh, Code Savvy is specific here to Minnesota, but it's connected to things like Technovation and Coder Dojos that can be found all around the world. For people who are kind of like, yeah, I want to uh, maybe help more people learn about AI and, and computer science and how to build evil robots to take over the world. Um, yeah, well, uh, we are all talk about the work you we're do. always looking for volunteers to help us uh, take the traditional computational thinking lessons 
put them online uh, and make them uh, licensed free for teachers to use, uh, part of the Creative Commons licenses, so they can integrate them in the classrooms. They can't resell them, uh, but they can put them in their classrooms free of charge. Uh, and we are also mm -hmm. working very hard to come up with very low cost and really fun robotics. Uh, so we have a $20 robot now that uh, we have designed that you can teach these concepts. Uh, and uh, at $20, uh, every kid in the classroom could potentially have their own compared to the $400 Lego Mindstorms robot. Uh, so it's really getting the cost down. And we're looking for uh, mentors to, to actually do this mentoring and also to build out new curriculum to teach uh, about data science, about uh, Python for programming, about uh, basic machine learning, and about uh, AI and how to find and detect and correct for bias in data sets. Those are all things that we are trying to bring to the high school curriculum, uh, not not uh, just for college students now. And I think uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, high school students very interested in learning those things. So if anybody out there would like to participate in uh, helping build that curriculum, uh, no experience necessary. We'll teach you uh, how to do all this stuff. <laughs> we just want you to be able to uh, 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 help us work with kids and build, build content uh, for those kids. So that's it. Yeah. So it's definitely a great thing to do. Uh, we're going to have links to how to get involved if you're interested. Uh, and that's, you know, what we do is specifically in Minnesota, but there's, there's, we, there's, there's, we're connected to people who are doing this all around the world. And so we'll mm -hmm. also have links to, you know, I'm, you're welcome to help us here in Minnesota, wherever yep. you are, but also connections the, to other things you can do. The content we're building um, works around the entire planet, so there's no restrictions yeah. on geography here. Absolutely, yeah. The curriculums we're building are going to be shared. And, and I will also say, as, as a, um, my own hat is Director of Development, I'm also going to include a link for donations to Code Savvy. We are a nonprofit mm -hmm. organization. If you want to, uh, if you think things like this are important in, you know, sort of, because uh, one of the things we're really focused on is making sure that not only do all kids get this, but bringing it to... Uh, you know, the communities that have been historically underserved in terms of kids of mm -hmm. color, uh, working with native populations and, and Latinx populations here in Minnesota, working with low-income populations. So uh, if, you, if you're if you so inspired, we'd love a donation. Uh, Rob, what about for you? If people want to kind of learn more about what you're up to, and um, I know you're, you're every now and then on other <laughs> podcasts. and uh, Yeah, uh, I was just on Good Luck High Five uh, recording about Magic the Gathering rule stuff. One thing that I'm getting into that I'm going to be doing a bunch of stuff with is an, a different charity for kids, mm. uh, Magic Kids, which is a Magic the Gathering. Basically, kids, if kids are excited about knowing about a reason to read or do math, right, they they'll be more likely to do it. Uh, and that giving them that hook, giving them that that social skill too is very important. So Magic Kids does free kits that they send out to educators that want to run a magic club in their school that want to do it uh, that want to run a magic club for kids in their area like at a library. Uh, just to be clear, this is a some... Magic the Gathering club, not a yeah, magic... practice card tricks and stuff. Yeah, like no, that. no, no. They don't learn how to practice card tricks. They play the card game Magic the Gathering, which is really math intensive, really reading intensive, teaches sportsmanship, teaches uh, social skills to work with other people. So I've I've been getting involved with them quite a bit lately, and uh, we're going to be recording a bunch of videos for them. And if you are interested in uh, getting getting your kids to play some some card gaming as a club with no cost to you magic kids will send you a kit for free if you have a plan um the magic kids m-a-g-i k-i-d-s dot org and they do 
they do um, donations to charities. They do, they work with a lot of children's hospitals. It's run by some people that work at Mayo Clinic, and so they don't need the money. And so they're they're just they just want to be able to reach out and get kids the tools to be more engaged and excited about learning, basically. So, so it, just out of curiosity, is there an equivalent of teaching computational thinking in magic? Uh, obviously, it's a social game, right? It's interaction. Do you mm -hmm. have a, here's the principles that we want to teach in our curriculum? So, yeah, the, the, the breakdown that Magic Kids does is they teach you basically how to read cards by sorting them. So you get handed a bunch of unsorted cards, like learn what a card looks like and what different kinds of cards are, break down what's on the card. What the card, and then they you build a deck so you figure out what the cards that you have should go together in what way, and so you you modularize the cards, you modularize the how to put them together, and then you play the game in a in a simple mode to a more complicated mode. You learn how different kinds of cards work, and so it's it's broken down into the into the different modules. I do a lot of teaching of magic judges, and I do computational style thinking all the time. Uh, my my motto when I'm teaching judges is. It, it, the, the rules are 259 pages and they didn't write them for fun. Mm. <laughs> Everything in there is for a reason. It solves some problem in the game. Figure out what problem this is solving in the game and you'll understand the rules much better. I like Very it. Cool. I like it. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for talking about that. That's yeah, awesome work as well. And we'll definitely have a link to donate to Magic Kids as well. But of course, always, you know, uh, just glad you're listening, glad you're learning, glad you're um, uh, participating. And that's the best thing as well. Would love to hear what you have to think. Um, if you go to theethicalpanda.com, that's the website for this and all of my podcasts, there you'll find our contact information. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, email us directly, use the contact form. Uh, would love to know what you think. What are what are your thoughts on AI and the Matrix or any other thing? Uh, is it something to be afraid of? Should we be preparing to embrace our Silicon overlords? Uh, let us know. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to both of our great guests and to all of you out there. Have a great day. 